Welcome to Mentalizing an Existence, a podcast about philosophy, psychotherapy, theory of mind, and the meaning of human existence. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Price. I'm a psychiatrist and psychotherapist who's been practicing for over 20 years. And while this podcast will touch upon psychotherapy and even psychotherapy technique, I'm hopeful that it will be a place for everyone to learn about the most important process that humans have access to, mentalizing. And I hope that we will learn to use mentalizing to find meaning in our existence through the philosophy and psychotherapy of existentialism. Each week we'll talk about different aspects of mentalizing, of existentialism, and related fields. And I hope you'll find not only entertainment and perhaps information, but more importantly, a way to connect better with those around you, with your own mind, and with true meaning in our lives. Welcome, Mentalizing and Existence podcast listeners. This is the introduction to a series of 12 podcasts that are designed for those people who are entering mentalization-based treatment. The podcasts are referred to as Mentalization-Based Treatment Introductory Group, or MBTI, and are essentially a podcast version of a group that I do in person with any of my patients who are entering Mentalization-Based Treatment in my clinic. If you are a Mentalizing and Existence listener uh, but not seeking treatment, you may find these uh, podcasts uh, helpful in really uh, digging deep into the idea of mentalizing uh, and the aspects of mentalizing. But for the average listener, this may, these 12 sessions may not be um, the most uh, interesting or exciting. For those of you who are entering mentalizing-based treatment, uh, I encourage you to listen to all 12 of these episodes. Uh, and in fact, there are some of you listening who I have assigned to listen to these 12 episodes in place of doing MBTI group. Over the next 12 sessions, uh, there are a few things I want you to keep in mind. First, uh, each one will have this same introduction, and the introduction itself will last about three minutes total. So you may skip ahead to uh, the beginning of each session uh, once you've listened to this one time, uh, because it will repeat in front of each of the sessions. Uh, second, um, I would like you to have a pen and, or pencil ready. And third, I'd like you to have a, a notebook for just taking notes on the concepts that we're going to discuss. And fourth, I would like you to have a separate notebook or notepad in which you write down the responses uh, to the questions or 
exercises that I give you in the podcast. Generally speaking, this group is in person and is an interactive group. That can't be done on this podcast. Uh, so in lieu of that, I'll have I'll give you the same questions and assignments during the uh, middle of each session, and I want you to write down the question and then write down your response or your answer after thinking about it. Usually, you would pause the podcast at that point in order to do so and then return to the podcast where we'll have a discussion about uh, your potential answers. In addition, at the end of each of the 12 podcasts, or actually at the end of the first 11 podcasts, you will be given homework, and I want you to write down uh, the question or prompt for that homework, and then to actually attempt to do the homework. Now, typically, we have a week between groups, and I recognize that some of you may be listening to many of these podcasts back-to-back, which is okay. But you'll see that the homework in, at times requires you to uh, think about what's been going on for you over the preceding week. So um, I encourage you to take those prompts or those questions and to think over uh, some preceding amount of time about those mentalizing questions. For those of you who I've assigned uh, these podcasts, uh, we will be having an in-person session at the end uh, in which you and I sit down and actually go over your answers uh, to each of these questions, uh, primarily to make sure that you've um, absorbed the material um, and that we can have a discussion about what you found useful and what you haven't. The content for all of these 12 sessions comes from uh, Anthony Bateman and Peter Fonagy's 2016 book, Mentalization-Based Treatment for Personality Disorders, A Practical Guide. It is essentially content from chapter 11, which is the MBTI chapter. And uh, that book is published by Oxford University Press. Welcome to MBTI session number six, Attachment and Mentalizing. So last uh, session, we talked, we introduced everyone to the idea of attachment. Attachment refers to the positive emotional bond that we have with another human being. And, you know, we didn't talk about it, but people could be attached to pets and animals as well. Um, we didn't really spend much time talking about that, but I think uh, many of our listeners um, have those experiences as well. But we were focused on emotional bonds, and positive uh, feelings about another human being, which we refer to as attachment. We noted that our early childhood patterns of attachment with our primary caregivers, which for many of us is our biological, par or our biological parents or parent, but could be other people who, who raised us or took care of us, those early patterns and how they went for us really influence our adult patterns of connecting with and bonding with others. We described the way that attachment patterns have been evaluated in children called uh, a strange situation. There are frankly other, many other experimental situations where 
attachment patterns have been looked at, but the most um, famous one is the strange situation in which uh, a child, usually of one year of age, is uh, alternately separated and reunited with their caregiver. And how they respond when they're separated and how they respond when they're reunited uh, differs amongst children, but falls generally into three broad categories. The first is secure, where the child is uh, upset when the mother leaves or the caregiver leaves um, and demonstrates that they're upset when the mother returns but is able to be comforted relatively easily. The other two are referred to as insecure attachment patterns. One is in insecure ambivalent or also called in insecure overly involved or clinging. And here the child is very upset when the mother attempts to leave and does leave. And when the mother returns, uh, protests greatly how upset they were and is has a difficult time being soothed and comforted by the mother or caregiver. The other form of insecure attachment is also referred to as avoidant, distanced, or detached. And these children seem pretty aloof. Uh, even when mother leaves or their caregiver leaves, they don't seem to be upset on the outside. They don't seem to protest. On the, on the inside, however, their physiologic response is similar to it to what it is for the other two types of children. And when mother comes back, they also don't seem to show a lot of concern or care about her return. And yet, um, they are calmed in terms of physiologically. What we then asked you to do is to think about your own attachment style or pattern, which might differ depending on who we're talking about you relating to, but you might find that you're more likely to be in one of those three categories. And that was actually the homework to think about what is the more typical attachment pattern or attachment relationships that you find yourself in. So today we're going to talk about what mentalizing has to do with attachment and vice versa. It turns out that growing up in a mentalizing culture promotes secure attachment. And secure attachment facilitates a person's mentalizing abilities. So we're going to come back to this, but before I say more about it in general, I want to say what I mean by a mentalizing culture. So a mentalizing culture is a culture where people frequently discuss other people and why they behave the way they do. The discussions in a mentalizing culture are done with a reasonable degree of open-mindedness without certainty and without triggering oppressive family taboos. So that's what we mean by an oppressive uh, a mentalizing culture where we can talk about why people do things. We can ask questions about it. We can 
consider alternatives. And we're not necessarily absolutely sure that we know why someone did something. And our curiosity isn't limited by subjects that we're not allowed to talk about, or it's only very infrequently limited, limited by such taboos. So that is how we would describe a mentalizing culture. And frankly, MBT and our program strives to be a mentalizing culture, a place where we can talk about these things we can consider why people act the way they do and, and not get upset about uh, asking those questions or even proposing answers. And for that matter, not getting um, certain or rigid about our responses. So that's a mentalizing culture. And what's been found is that if a child, if a person grows up as a child in a, in a family where where uh, there is a good mentalizing culture, where they are allowed to ask questions about why people do things, where they're, in fact, encouraged to do so, where the conversations are ones in which there is an openness to um, exploring why people do things and the nature of their minds. When that's the case, that the child is more likely to be securely attached to their caregivers. And it's also been shown that securely attached children develop mentalizing skills at more consistently and at a faster rate than those who don't qualify as securely attached. So in the big picture, the connection between mentalizing and attachment and the reason that we've talked about attachment in a podcast that's about mentalizing is that secure attachment goes hand in hand with good mentalizing and vice versa. And it seems that mentalizing, among other things, allows for the creation of secure attachment. And secure attachment allows, among other things, for the creation of good mentalizing. So we believe that there is a virtuous cycle of mentalizing on the part of the parent leading to um, a child who is securely attached and who therefore is able to learn to be a better, a better mentalizer as they grow up. And of course, that means that their children are more likely to be securely attached and then ultimately better mentalizers in the long run. Now, there's a lot of things that can disrupt this, and it doesn't always go that way. But um, good mentalizing in a family makes secure attachment more likely, and secure attachment makes uh, learning to mentalize more likely as well. So what I'd like you to do now is to think about your, the culture that you grew up in, your family, and how you would characterize it with respect to mentalizing. Was it a mentalizing culture? If so, in what way? What are the examples you can give or 
what are ways in which you think that your family had or exemplified a mentalizing culture? If it wasn't, if you have doubts about it or you wonder about it, what are the memories you have that um, feel as though they uh, they weren't really about a mentalizing culture in your family? So did your did your family encourage these this curiosity about minds and asking questions and understanding why people do things, or was that something that was really never talked about, or if it started to be talked about, it was shut off? Write down your thoughts about that, and then rejoin the podcast when you've done so. So, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about attachment conflict. In a way, attachment conflict is sort of the opposite of uh, a mentalizing culture. An attachment conflict is one in which one inhibits or exaggerates signals about one's emotional state because one fears or is insecure about what will happen if one seeks out or calls for an attachment person. So when our desire or impulse to become closer to someone is inhibited by something else, we refer to that as a con- an attachment conflict. So when it's not straightforward to say, for one to s- express that they want to be closer to somebody or they need help from somebody else, that's an attachment conflict. And it might lead to us not seeking out what we're hoping for or it might lead to us exaggerating the way we seek out that that hope and help so another activity here i want you to stop um, and think about and write down examples of your own attachment conflicts ones that you've experienced in your life either now or um, in the past. And I'll, I'll give you a sort of an example for me. Um, but I want you to, I want you to take the time to do that for yourself for a second. Okay. For me, uh, I find that I have attachment conflicts around money. Um, I grew up in a family where money was kind of an issue and my parents got into lots of arguments about money. Um, and so when the subject of money comes up um, with my my wife, my spouse, I um, there's a way in which I'd like to be closer to her. But what happens is I end up kind of pushing her away and trying to bury the topic in ways that are actually are frustrating for her. But I think that... That's a realm in which I experience an attachment conflict. I'd like to be close to my wife around uh, solving money issues, but I actually become inhibited in that sense. When you think about your own attachment conflicts, what consequences do you think this has had for your mentalizing ability? Write some of those down.
So it's important to recognize that attachment relationships are important for a child to become aware of their own emotional states, to be able to put words to those states, and to find out the reasons for them, to use emotions to orient themselves in the mental landscape. Attachment relationships allow us to do that. So when we have attachment conflicts, it inhibits a child's ability to mentalize right from the start, and it undermines their ability to deal with attachment conflicts later. So if you have those difficulties, it's not your fault. Um, and it may not even be your parents' fault. Sometimes it's this is something that they weren't able to do themselves, not because they didn't want to, but because they didn't know how to. But if that was the case for you, it may you may find that mentalizing and attachment relationships in adulthood are difficult. So now, another activity I'd like you to do is to make a note of something you find difficult to talk about in a close relationship and what the reason for this might be. I've given you an example for me of money, but I'd like you to write that down for yourself. Maybe it's money, maybe it's sex, maybe it's um, commitment. Maybe it's food or substances. All of those things might be difficult to talk about. Think about that, write it down, and then come back to the podcast when you've done so. All right. We're going to end there for this session. Um, but I'm going to give you your homework now. So today we've talked about the relationship atta between attachment and mentalizing. And what I'd like you to do is make a note of something that's been difficult for you to talk about in a close relationship over the course of the next week or perhaps last week. So before we were asking you to, t to note just in general topics that are difficult to talk about, now we're asking you to to notice it when it comes up. Maybe it's a different topic. Notice those things that come up for you that are difficult to talk about, even with people you care about. Okay, I'll see you next time.